Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello and welcome. JCPL's summer learning theme is Get Creative, so this month we're focusing on books about creativity and creative people. I'm going to start off with talking about a book called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. Big Magic is a self-help book for anyone currently engaged in a creative practice or for anyone who wants to live a more creative life. Gilbert argues not only that, quote, a creative life is an amplified life, unquote, but that human beings have been creating and making since the beginning of time. Quote, to even call somebody a creative person is almost laughably redundant, she says. Creativity is the hallmark of our species, unquote. One of the anecdotes that best illustrates Gilbert's point of view happens early on in the book. Gilbert tells the story of her friend Susan, who realized at age 40 that, quote, the last time she'd felt truly light, joyous, and yes, creative, was when she figure skated as a teenager. So Susan bought a pair of skates, hired a coach, and began skating again. Not because she thought she was going to become a figure skating champion, but, quote, because skating is still the best way for her to unfold a certain beauty and transcendence within her life that she cannot seem to access in any other manner, unquote. In brief chapters filled with stories from her own life and the lives of her friends, Gilbert describes how to conquer your fear, how to court inspiration, and how to cultivate your creativity. She reminds you that, despite her own wild and unexpected success with Eat, Pray, Love, you should not create because you want to be famous or even to help people, but because you love it. Because you find the kind of absorption and transcendence that her friend Susan found on the ice. I first read the book when it came out in 2015, but I recently listened to the audiobook and I think I need to make a date with it at least once a year. Gilbert's performance of the book makes it feel like she's your own personal creativity coach. She's a cheerleader, yes, but she's also not afraid to tell it straight, to kick you in the pants when you need it. And don't we all need that once in a while? I think that's true. <laughs> so, um... I don't actually have a recipe, but I wanted to pair this with another book. It's actually one that came out in 2012 when Gilbert wrote the foreword to a new edition of her great-grandmother's 1947 cookbook, which is called At Home on the Range. Um, and Margaret Yardley Potter was evidently as chatty and witty as the great-granddaughter she never met. However, as in many historical cookbooks, I'd rather read the recipes for, say, kidney stew <laughs> than eat them. Fortunately, a good martini or Manhattan never goes out of style, and in the chapter, less moaning at the bar, please. <laughs> what a great chapter title. <laughs> yes. 
Potter proclaims that, quote, any halfway intelligent woman should be able to produce a drinkable cocktail, for no loss of femininity ever follows the discovery that the contents of the cook's frosty shaker are palatable. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, the whole, the whole book reads like that. It's really, it's really fun. Um, the recipes also are kind of written, you know, as text in the bodies of the text. Um, so I think even if you were trying to make something, it would it would be kind of difficult. But, you know, I don't... It's not following steps. It's You have to pull it out of a narrative. Yeah. And in fact, um, Elizabeth Gilbert actually wrote in the back. She kind of translated some of the recipes that her family still makes. Um, so there are a few recipes at the back of the book that you could, um, I guess, conceivably get through if you wanted to. But mostly I think it's just a fun read. Yeah, that sounds great. I love that quote because I got into cocktails a little bit a mm -hmm. few years ago and it really felt like I had like just learning how to put one together is kind of like cooking in, in any other way because you're trying to balance a bunch of different flavors. Mm -hmm. And once I learned the different components and how you go about that, because it's not the same as cooking, you're d using different ingredients, um, it really does feel like you can do so much <laughs> with one drink and feel very capable in your, your abilities. Mm -hmm. That's so fun. Yeah. Time to check it out. Please do. So the first book that I'm going to recommend is part graphic novel, part memoir, and was developed out of a wildly popular webcomic by the name Hyperbole and a Half. Oh, I love Hyperbole <laughs> and a Half. <laughs> yes, I agree. And uh, the book, much like the webcomic, is wonderful. Um, it is written by Ali Brosh, and the full title of the book, just to give you some context, is hyperbole and a half unfortunate situations flawed coping mechanisms mayhem and other things that happened it's hilarious uh the webcomic was wildly popular like i said and um eventually the the artist and author got a book deal and what came out of it is it's just great i don't i i'm gonna tell you more about it but there's just not enough that i can say about um, Ali Brosh's comics, I think they're brilliant. And she's very inspiring to me, both as a writer and just funny, creative person. There's, mm -hmm. She does amazing things. Um, so there's a lot that I love about the way that she tells stories. And that's, I think that's part of why I find her to be so inspiring, because the way that she tells stories is so compelling and hilarious. And, like, it's... It, She's just great. I, I'm, again, very ineloquent when I come to things that I, I admire a lot. But um, anyway, perhaps my favorite thing about her website and this book in particular is how exquisitely she's able to vividly illustrate extremely specific emotions and situations using only the most basic of computer animation tools, Microsoft Paint. <laughs> it's her, her imagery is is not sophisticated. It is very basic. There is no color depth 
or modulation in any way, but she's able to convey very complex emotions um, and, and feelings. She's able to pinpoint and call out the truly ridiculous in every, everyday life, whether that's in the form of her childhood and the various ways she challenged her parents, her efforts in adulting, adventures in owning stupid dogs, or her own struggles with depression. One of the stories in the book that was also published on her website focuses on her first major experience with depression. And it's been held up by many as an example of what, like a really good example of what depression both feels like and what it's like to interact with other people when you're depressed. Um, and it, it's just, it's, it's really honest and raw. And as honest and raw as the story is, it's also just deeply funny. Mm-hmm. She, she is able to pull the humor out in really remarkable ways. Um, I think that's part of why her humor in particular is so successful. Um, but just about anybody can find something relatable in her stories to give them a chuckle. Yeah, I, I, I love the drawings. I think what's so great about them too is that contrast. You know, they look so childish. They do. <laughs> Extremely childish and basic. And you could create them, you could replicate them yourself. Like, it doesn't seem like the imagery is something that you would be, like, even if you had very minimal skills, you mm-hmm. could do it. <laughs> That's not really the point. But they're, but they're perfect. They're perfect, <laughs> though. It's really amazing. <laughs> And when I remember when that book first came out, I think all of the staff were fighting over the copy. <laughs> I think I was reading it in, in the staff break room once, and everyone was like, oh, I've got that on hold. <laughs> you definitely had to finish it <laughs> quick because someone had it on hold after you. I mean, which was easy to do because it, you just want to. It's a pretty quick read, yeah. and it's so funny that you just you buzz right through it. Um, but yeah, it's just great. And what I decided to pair with this book, um, I, I took inspiration from her story called The God of Cake, in which her... <laughs> oh, I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> she is a young girl, maybe six or seven or eight, and um, she becomes completely fixated on eating a fancy cake that her mom has prepared for her grandfather's birthday. And her mom hides it in various places, tries to keep it out of her reach, tries to create barricades around the cake because she made it early in the day and the party isn't until later. Um, And in the end, of course, young Allie tracks it down and eats it entirely (laughs) and then is sick for the rest of the day. But, you know, vindicated in her success Mm -hmm. and conquering the challenge. Um, But anyway, one of the fanciest cakes I've ever seen made is a three-tiered almond and apricot wedding cake that was made by Martha Stewart on the television show Baking with Julia, which is with Julia Child, and it was just a lovely little show. Julia Child is just lovely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm actually going to be talking about her next. This is a perfect segue. (laughs) Yes, we are. So I think the recipe for the cake is also in the book Baking with Julia, um, but I can't verify that because it's checked out but um the the cake is just beautiful and it's covered with marzipan and it's very fancy and that would be one that i want to sit down and eat (laughs) in its entirety um also even if you 
can't get the cookbook out, the you can watch the show itself on PBS.org or on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And just watching Julia Child interact with Martha Stewart in the early 2000s is a, it's an experience. <laughs> and I highly recommend tracking it down. It's just delightful. Yeah, I, I, we used to have it on DVD. I watched it from the library. But yeah, it's... I, I mean, it's always funny when Martha Stewart is, you know, she's always the straight man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so... Well, and Julia Child's, like, in her 80s and just, <laughs> like, enjoying watching someone else cook for her. And <laughs> yeah. Martha's being extremely precise all of the time mm-hmm. because that that's who she is. Right. But this is, like, pre all of the insider trading and <laughs> massive fame. She mm. was... She was just a caterer mm-hmm. and making wedding cakes. And it looks amazing. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so I promise we didn't plan this, but the next book that I wanted to talk about is France is a Feast. The Photographic Journey of Paul and Julia Child by Alex Prudhomme and Katie Pratt. Paul Child is the perfect example of someone who lived a creative life, quietly painting and taking photographs in his spare time while he worked in diplomatic posts abroad. His stunning black and white photographs of his and wife's Julia's lives appear in print for the first time in France is a Feast, which came out in 2017. The Childs lived in France from 1948 until 1954, and most of the photographs in the book were taken during that time. Paul was attracted to lines and geometric patterns, which you can especially see in the photographs of Paris architecture and street life. My favorite photographs, though, are the ones that provide a behind-the-scenes glimpse of his and Julia's daily lives. Julia towering over the ancient stove in her Paris kitchen or having a roofnik with her sister. I recommend this book to Francophiles, to fans of Julia Child who want to learn more about the partner who supported her creative endeavors, or to anyone looking for a model of how to live creatively. In honor of Julia and Paul's roofniks and their many roadside picnics in the French countryside, Pair France is a feast with picnic food. Start with a baguette and some cheese. If, like me, you don't do the real thing, I make an almond-based cheese that is always a hit with both vegans and non-vegans, and we'll link to that recipe on our blog. If you're feeling more ambitious, the first volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking recommends cold quiche as a dish that's easy to take along on a picnic. The book describes many variations of quiche, most of which require lots of heavy cream and cheese, but I'm intrigued by the fresh tomato quiche with anchovies and olives, which only requires a little Parmesan or Swiss and could easily be substituted. I may give it a try come tomato season, which is almost upon us. Right, the next book that I chose to recommend this month is one that I think is creative because it takes 
the challenge of doing a retelling of a beloved story and does it pretty well. Um, I find, you know, remix uh, within literature, but also throughout the arts, remix culture to be really like it can be very stale and not inventive, but um, when it's done well and done in an exciting way to bring you know, a new perspective to an old story. I think it's great. Um, so this book is called A Blade So Black, and it's written by L.L. McKinney. Unfortunately, it doesn't come out until September, so I can't, I don't have many people that I can talk about it with yet, but um, it is a retelling of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Um, I Many authors often draw from fairy tales or legends and reinterpret them for different contexts. And this one, I think, does a pretty good job. In this tale, Alice is an African-American teenager from Atlanta who also happens to be able to see and fight the malicious creatures called nightmares that can cross the border between Wonderland and the quote-unquote real world. Uh, one of Alice, Alice's friends calls her Black Buffy taking tests by day and fighting monsters by night, just like Buffy the Vampire Slayer of early 2000s television. I thought it was just clever enough while making a new story around Carol's mythos that is both fun and compelling. Like I said, it doesn't come out until September, but I think it will be quite the hit. Very fun, with a little bit of danger. And uh, I thought it was a, a pretty cool way to take Lewis Carroll's uh, basic story and and update it and transform it and make it something new. So in the book, Alice's mom prepares Alice's favorite meal, which is shrimp scampi. It's a hard one to say. <laughs> shrimp scampi um, for her. She makes it for Alice on the, the night that she crosses over and back from, from Wonderland for the first time. I'm not a huge fan of shrimp, but there is a similar dish that I make all the time when tomatoes in season tomatoes are in season and I bet shrimp would be a good addition for those who enjoy the little crustaceans. Uh, the recipe is a tomato water pasta and I found it a few years ago on Food 52. It's really simple, comes together really quickly and it allows fresh ripe tomatoes to just take over and coat the pasta and I just want to eat it all the time when tomatoes are in season. Um, so check it out and also look for A Blade So Black in September. If you're looking for more of a beach read about a creative type, then I recommend Petty, the biography by Warren Zanes. This book came out in 2015 and includes many interviews with the famously reclusive Petty, his bandmates, friends, and family. Although I'm a Tom Petty fan and lived in Gainesville, Florida, where he was from, I really didn't expect to enjoy this book as much as I did. I don't normally read rock and roll biographies, I just happened to pick up the copy my husband was reading and got sucked in. I especially liked how much the book delves into Petty's writing process. His songs always sound effortless, but they took a lot of time and hard work to craft. Petty's ambition went beyond fame. He wanted to create the best music he could, like a true artist. Petty left Florida in the 70s, but you can still hear a swampy southern sound in his music. My favorite place to 
eat when I visit my family in Florida is JB's Fish Camp in New Smyrna Beach. They grow oysters on site. You can't get them fresher than that. Wow. You can order them smoked or fried, but I prefer them raw so you can taste the ocean. They are big Tom Petty fans at JB's, and chances are you'll hear one of his songs while you're there. Oysters, a cold beer, maybe a few shrimp on the side, (laughs) (laughs) and Tom Petty. That's pretty much the perfect afternoon, in my humble opinion. It sounds lovely. Yeah, I, I think JB's would uh, w- would convert anyone. Would it swing me over to shrimp. It, it, it might. It's a tall feat. For for sure, a nice grouper fish sandwich would would swing you over. I've had fresh oysters before, and they're just so deceptive looking. Like they shouldn't taste that way. I don't know. There's something <laughs> about them. I'm always surprised that they just taste like the sea. Is that what is like? I just, I haven't had that many. Well, they taste like the sea, but they're also, they're also kind of musky, I think. They have kind of this earthy flavor as well. Now, scallops, especially the little bay scallops, to me, those taste just like the ocean. They don't have that deeper flavor that, that oysters have. Yeah. And, um... I go scalloping with my family, so we get those really fresh. Oh, how fun. Where do you find scallops? Um, We go, um, it's off, it's in the Gulf, off the coast of um, uh, Crystal River. Um, And um, it's just kind of like an Easter egg hunt underwater. It's very shallow water where they, where they grow. And um, you snorkel and you just see them and pick them up and put them in your little bag that's so wild (laughs) i'm I'm a i'm a landlocked kentucky and i don't know anything about all this that sounds like fun it is fun um even my husband who (laughs) is uh, a a landlocked south carolinian he's from upstate south carolina um he he kind of took a while to be converted to the fun of scalloping he also doesn't like the sunshine very much. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard for indoor people. <laughs> but, but even he was was converted to scallops, <laughs> and to and to the act of actually doing it, you may have to swallow a, a little bit of water <laughs> at first. Yeah, that's a whole other level of just eating seafood. Now you have to go collect it. <laughs> yeah, that, that does sound like a fun afternoon, though. Yeah, especially if it's warm outside. So another book that I, I when thinking about creativity and um, creative people, my my thought process immediately went to people that that tell stories in creative ways. Um, so I've, I've been thinking more about um, books that have been, you know, sort of interesting to me, just not just in the story itself, but also how it's told. Um, and one of the other books that I really love about that I think is written pretty creatively um, is The Slow Regard of Silent Things by Patrick Rothfuss. 
Um, it is one of, it is part of a series. It's an adjacent book to the King Killer Chronicle, um, which is what he is very known for. Uh, the series starts with the name of the wind, and it's one of my my own problematic faves. I recognize its many faults while simultaneously loving it and cherishing it, regardless of its faults. Um, he hasn't finished the third book in the trilogy, and it's one of those epic tales. Um, but he did publish a novella about one of the characters, and that is The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Um, the trilogy books are only told from the point of view of the main character. So with slow regard, Rothfuss is able to explore his fantasy world from a totally new perspective and also simultaneously give readers a whole bunch of insight into a character that is pretty unknowable in the main books. She doesn't do a lot of explaining in the, in the main series. She just kind of exists and the main character experiences her and you don't know much about her or about her background. But in the novella, um, you get just a, a lot more insight, and he it's pretty straightforward following her through the activities of a week in her life. But because you have, like, if you've read the full series or the, the two books of the trilogy that have been published, you, you have this whole other context for her, and it brings a whole new light and understanding to that story. Uh, it's a weird little book. He says that in the introduction. <laughs> um, and you could read it without reading the other books, but I don't know that it would be quite as satisfying because you wouldn't have that other context. Mm -hmm. um, I do also recommend the whole series as a whole, uh, but I do want to make it clear that it spectacularly fails the Bechtel test. <laughs> like It has its problems. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but it is, it's a... You know, it's an interesting world that he's built, and I think it's a fun story, and I like the way he writes. So, um, if you have read the the two books of the trilogy, I also highly recommend you check out Slow Regard of Silent Silent Things. And on audio, Patrick Rothfuss himself does the narration, which is pretty fun. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people on a lot of staff members really like. Patrick Rothfuss. Yeah. That, did I get his it's last Rothfuss. name? Rothfuss. Rothfuss. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just a really big nerd, and he does a lot of publicity. But it's kind of like George R. R. Martin, where it's the never-ending writing. Mm -hmm. uh, it will never end. <laughs> he will never publish the third book, <laughs> of the trilogy, because it'll be a lot to wrap up. Okay. Well, I thanks. book that I wanted to talk about is called The Paper Garden. Mrs. Delaney Begins Her Life's Work at 72 by Molly Peacock. In The Paper Garden, American-Canadian poet Molly Peacock tells the story of Mary Delaney, an 18th century British paper artist who, at the age of 72 and while in grief over the death of her second husband, began creating what she called paper mosaics of botanical specimens. Over a period of 10 years, she created 985 of these cut paper flowers. 
Peacock gives Mrs. Delaney credit for creating mixed media collage. And the book includes full color photographs of her astonishing, highly detailed work. The format of Peacock's book resembles a collage, combining biography of Mrs. Delaney with analysis of her art and chapters about Peacock's own creative life. I recommend it for anyone with an interest in women's history, Jane Austen, or the nature of creativity, as well as for anyone looking for an inspiring read about a late-blooming artist. And obviously, you have to pair this book with something floral. (laughs) I found a recipe for orange blossom and honey polenta cake that sounds amazing and is both dairy and gluten-free if you happen to uh, have to cook for both types of people or happen to have both of those issues yourself. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't been able to try it yet. All of the recipes I found for that type of cake were British and they used grams. um, And I don't have a kitchen scale, so um, I'm going to have to, this is a good excuse to go out (laughs) and buy one. Um, But in any case, we'll put the recipe on our blog. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions, so feel free to email us at podcast at jesspublib.org. We record in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can find out more about the library, our recording studio, and the books we talked about in this episode on our website at jesspublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.